Father in heaven, as we come to your word this morning, we come uh, longing that we would hunger, that you would, that you would give us a deep hunger for the truth of what you speak of here, that you would open our hearts and minds, that we would long to receive it and not just as information to gather and to learn and to amass in our heads somewhere, but as truth to be incarnated and live that would shape not only our thinking, but our living. Father, we long for You to apply Your Word into our lives. And that as we think of the way Paul encountered spiritual warfare and resistance, that we would have our eyes open too to the reality in which we live and fight. That we might fight the good fight and finish the race well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> as I read some of these passages, I think about materialism. Because when I think of materialism, somewhere in my reading along the way, my, my, my understanding of materialism was pressed and pushed uh, wide. It, you know, sometimes when we think about materialism and we think about lives in America, we think about basically about our material goods. We, we think about our preoccupation with and our desire for material goods. That's materialism, you know, that we get too caught up in, you know, this and that and bigger that and newest this and, and stuff. And that is a materialism, but that is just a symptom of what is a deeper materialism that has infected uh, the church in the 20th century and gone now into the 21st century. And it's this, that, that we tend to treat unseen spiritual realities as unreal. That they're unseen. And it's not that we deny them. You and I would, would go down the theology of the checklist and check off, no, we believe in these things. We believe in angels and we believe in demons and we believe in the spiritual realm. And you know We believe these things, but often the way that we live and think doesn't really say that we believe in their reality. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.18, he says, we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. As a standard way of doing ministry and doing life and, and, and uh, encountering uh, you know, the, these kingdom realities, as Paul pursued his personal life and his ministry, he says, we're looking to things that aren't seen. Where I think sometimes we really wrestle with that. We really look at the things that are seen. You know, we're, we're counting different things and looking at different things, worried about different things, and they're often very calculated and material. And this verse, I think, reveals in these two verses, and I didn't get to 19 and 20, but I think as Paul tries to continue to speak to this church and answer some of their concerns and defend his ministry, that he, in, in, in speaking of that, he unveils his, his sense of a greater spiritual reality in which we live and move and have our being. And that it is more important and more determinative and should be more in the forefront of our thinking and our fighting and our living than, than we really give to it. We tend to be more materialistic. Paul is returning to a defense of his ministry. He did a little sidetrack at the end of verses 15 and 16 last week. And in verse 17, he returns and he says, but, and he returns to his defense of, of, of his ministry. He had been defending himself and his ministry and his motives in the first parts of chapter 1 and 2. And, uh, and now he moves back to it, but he comes in a slightly different 
mode. He's no longer talking about his conduct and motives, which is Christ and the Gospel are his, his motives in the shape of his, of his conduct. But he goes to answering some of their concerns about why he didn't come back to Thessalonica. That he was driven away by some of the persecution that he experienced there. He's driven away, but he hasn't returned. And, and it seems that they have said something to this effect when he sends Timothy and he's gotten a report back. And it seems a, a little bit of consternation that Paul himself has not returned to them. Have you forgotten us? Have you abandoned us? And you can tell it from the things that he says. Since we were torn away from you brothers, it was for a short time but in person, not, not in heart. And we endeavored eagerly with great desire to see you face to face. We wanted to come to you. We wanted to. I, Paul, again and again. And I think it's a positive statement of his feeling, but I think he's answering some misgivings in them. Have you forgotten us? Have you abandoned us? So he acknowledges that they're torn away, and that the verse that's used there, since we were torn away from you, the word is actually, literally, we were orphaned from you. And in the way the Greek can use that word, it can speak of children who were bereft of parents. But it's also applied to parents who have been bereft of children. We were, we were orphaned from you, we were torn away from you. The, 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 the tearing away of a parent and a child. You know, Paul has already talked about one of the sermons that we hit, that he was like a mother to them and a father to them. And so as, as their parent, and he says, and yeah, we were for a time torn away and we were orphaned from you. We without you desiring to see you. Our hearts are with you. But also you without us worrying about our care for you and whether we would come back. He says we're physically absent, but my friends, we have not abandoned you. We miss you. We long for you. We have been worried about you. We have been praying for you. He tells him again and again, I've been praying for you. And I wanted to come. I wanted to be with you. I wanted to return to you. And so verse 17, he says, we endeavored the more eagerly with great desire. I love when Paul stacks up those words, right? It's not like we endeavored to come. Or, oh, we had great desire to come. But it's we endeavored all the more eagerly with great desire. It's powerfully this motivation in Paul to see them. His love for them. His desire to help them. Protect them. Teach them. Ground them in the faith. But as we read this in verse 17, and I have to say, this is what I've been wrestling with all week as I've spent more time delving in here. Just what is being said in this verse. It's caused me to to really wrestle with it and to think about it. Because Paul is saying how much he wanted to do this. And as he goes on in verse 18, because we wanted to come to you. And again and again, you know, bent that way, was planning that way, or tried, you know, my best efforts in that direction. But then he says, but Satan hindered us. It's not because we didn't want to. It's not because we didn't try. We were hindered. We were prevented. Something got in the way of my best efforts and my desires. An enemy interfered with my progress. Interfered with my ability to accomplish those good desires. Some, he names Satan as his opponent. 
The one who hinders Satan is the Hebrew word, a Hebrew name. Going back in, in Israel's history for the adversary, the enemy. He says, the enemy, the adversary hindered me. So that it couldn't happen the way I wanted it to. And so he speaks of this real, personal, spiritual being that has had a very practical, negative effect on his ministry. And I've been thinking about this all week and thinking, what are the implications for me and my spiritual walk? What are the implications for us as a church as we seek the same thing? You know, that we eagerly endeavor all the more eagerly with great desire to see God do things, to move forward in ministry, to to see the church grounded and to grow and to be strong. And we desire many things as well. As every Christian, I think, whose heart beats after Christ and His kingdom, desires many things. But there is another reality. This is, those spiritual desires, those Christian desires, are part of a spiritual reality in which there is opposition. If you were doing it on our own personal life, I would talk about the flesh and the opposition that's within us. To every good thing that we would do, Paul says, you know, the flesh is right there. The enemy is right there with me. That every good endeavor we have, we have, we have resistance. The world, the flesh, and the devil. And the flesh internally. The world is a system of, of unbelief as it is built up in its own thing. But the devil, the world, the flesh, and the devil. He says it's a very real thing and it very practically has affected his ministry. And it's affected those to whom he ministered to. Paul wanted to get back to Thessalonica. I'm fascinated by the interplay here. This idea that he tried again and again. You know, that he had his best efforts. And yet he's hindered. You have Paul's best efforts, Satan's hindering. And over it all, as a reformed person, God's sovereignty. How does that work? How does it work that Paul has desires, I think, which are after God's own heart? And... And Satan hinders him, and yet the Lord is sovereign. And I've been wrestling with how does this work? How does it work for us? Despite his best efforts, he found interference. At some level, Paul's saying, it wasn't entirely my fault. You know, I, I had some right endeavors in mind. I had the right things in mind. I had you in my heart. My motives were good, and my motives were pure, and my intentions were right. But the fact that I didn't make it to you, the fact that I wasn't able to accomplish all my good designs wasn't entirely my fault. We have an enemy. And he is active. And he is at times effective. You know, I mentioned last week just the, the reality of this spiritual warfare that, we are, that we're talking about here. Now we see the real effects of the enemy. You know, it, it, it for me is, it, it shocks me again and again because I'm, like I say, when I say that we in America, you know, become more materialistic, I do. You know, I do my work. I, I do my work. I prepare hard and I do the right things. And I talk to the right people and you make the right plans and you do the things and it should work. That's materialism. Right? It's mechanistic that says, what about God who is almighty and He works in spite of and around and through and over these things and under them? You know, the God who is building His kingdom and even the gates of hell. You know, it's materialistic and it says, well, what about an enemy that all my good designs may come to naught? 
You know, my good intentions, is there an enemy that I take into account? Do I do? Do I fight the good fight and understand that I'm at war? And that I need, you know, the Lord to fight on our side in ways I need to cry out. You know, it takes the battle out of the purely materialistic and humanistic mindset, the, the mechanistic mindset of, of church, and into a spiritual realm that says there's a lot more going on. We're tempted to just say, well, Paul clearly didn't try hard enough. He didn't talk to the right people. He didn't plan effectively. If he had planned effectively ahead of time, then that wouldn't have happened. If he, you know, we, this is the way we think. We can overcome, right? We just have to use the right methodologies, right? Have the right technologies, the right techniques. And if we did, it wouldn't happen. And we would get there. We would get to Thessalonica and it would happen the way that we want it to. But it seems that God is saying, at least in leaving this in here and allowing at least in this instant for Satan to, to hinder, to disrupt, to prevent. You know, for me, so that this is just a reality. I just read the sentence and it just threw me back in my track. Paul, I wanted to see you and Satan hindered us. And it threw me back in my track. So there's this reality. There it is. There's a reality. Satan hinders us. Satan interferes with our program. All our techniques and our methods and whatever else we want to do. There's an enemy that can make it all come. So there's this reality, and it still for me then starts to beg those two questions of God's sovereignty and Satan's methods. How did he do it? What did that look like? And how is God sovereign and, and the devil do it? As regards God's sovereignty, I think we have to say that God let Satan hinder Paul. We have to say, if you take all the Scripture seriously, that God let Satan hinder Paul. Because God is sovereign. And He is the Lord of all such things. If we begin to say that the devil is able to thwart the purposes of God, if, it, if the devil is able to put God's purposes, in other words, if God wanted it to happen, we, you know, we would say, if I'm doing something, we pray that we want God to heal, or we want God to do something, you know, and we pray as if God could actually make a difference. As if God could actually heal if He wanted to. Sometimes He does and sometimes He doesn't, but if He wants to. In other words, sometimes God's purposes and His wisdom beyond our understanding will heal. And there are times beyond our understanding in our wisdom where He does not heal. But it doesn't mean He's not sovereign. In one case, He actively intervenes perhaps to allow things to be successful and to bring healing. In other ways, He allows. He allows things to go. He allows the devil to have leash. Because often God will open doors. He says that He will knock down the very gates of hell to advance His kingdom. He will not be thwarted. He will not be stopped. We see in Acts 16.7, Paul says, they attempted to go into Bithynia. We attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So, here he is injured again. He has an attempt to go here. He has a plan to go here. And here, he attributes it to the power of God that the Holy Spirit actually intervenes and says, no, Paul, go this way. Now, this is an interesting thing, that hindering sometimes is attributed to the Holy Spirit and sometimes is attributed to Satan. And how we bring those together 
And I would say that they are not mutually exclusive in any way. That sometimes the Spirit allows us to be, you know, hinders us by allowing secondary causes, allowing the enemy to intervene. He gives them leash and he lets him. So Satan couldn't have prevented Paul if God didn't want him to. And I hope that we do understand and believe that. That God is the God of Satan. That He is the Lord of everything He has created. That Satan is a created being. He is a lesser being. He is not a deity on par with God. He is not a deity who can, who can fight God in such a way as to rival Him or anything. Satan is a created being. And from the beginning of Scripture to the end, it says the day will come He will be chained and cast into hell. God is biding His time and for whatever reason and why it is in this fallen world that He allows sin and He allows the enemy until the day is coming when the skies will be rolled back and He'll gather the saints from the four corners and the devil will be changed and He will be pitted in hell and He will take care of business and He will. We know that. And it's not that He lacks the power right now. It's not that He's somehow hindered from doing it. For whatever reason, in His wisdom and purpose, He is building a church in the midst of a fallen and broken world over which He is still Lord. And He is still King. Daniel 4, he says this, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. Don't take it as a value statement. It's taken as a power statement. They're accounted as nothing. He does according to His will among the host of heaven, angels, demons, and powers it may be. He does His will according to the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And there is none who can stay His hand or say, what have you done? God is sovereign over even this devil, Satan. On earth and in heaven, Ephesians 1, He says the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. How many things does He work according to the counsel of His will? All things. Oh, my friends, we kneel and we bless and praise God that He is working all things together for the good of those who love Him. How can He work all things together for the good of those He loves if He's not working all things? Even these things for the good of Paul and the Thessalonians. And we don't know why God has allowed it, but He has. And it's because He is God and because He is good. But the devil cannot thwart the purposes of God. Let us never be tempted to think such things. Sometimes people say, they find some comfort in saying, well, God had nothing to do with it. I just don't know how that's comforting. But for some people, I mean, it's an emotionally charged thing that we can, you know, of course God had nothing to do with that. He would never allow such a thing. I say, do you realize what you're saying? You're saying that, that God couldn't do anything about it. And if He could do something about it, and if He, and if he can and He does some, why, why else would we pray unless we believe He can and He does sometimes? For every and every kind of thing that we do, we believe that God can and does intervene all, all kinds of times. But as soon as we say something has happened and God had nothing to do with it, we just took the universe out of His hands. We just said there are places and there are things that God just can't help. But He can help it. And sometimes He does. And sometimes He allows it. You think of Job, if you want an illustration, you just think of the first chapter of Job. You remember Satan comes, and you get this, you know, peel back the curtain of the spiritual realm, and Satan comes, and he says, you know, my servant Job, and this whole dialogue goes on, and God says, you can go. He says, well, if he was a, you know, he loves you because he's blessed. 
But if he was a little less blessed, I don't think he would love you quite so much. And God said, all right, well, you can, you can do this. He gives him just a little bit of leash and Satan goes. And when he brings destruction and, and death and pain into his life, Job tears his robes and worships God. And he comes back and he says, well, then you can go this far. And he has the plundering of his goods and he loses things. And, but the Satan cannot go further than the Lord, for whatever reason, allowed him. And finally he comes back and he says, well, he has his health. And God says, okay, this far you can afflict him, but you can't kill him. Like He can only go so far that God allows him, not one inch further. He can give him leash and he can pull the leash back, but Satan is a created being and he is not out of God's control. He allows for whatever reason sin and sinfulness to abide for a time until his purposes are accomplished when it will be judged and there will be a day where there will be no more sinning and no more tears and no more devil. But for now, he allows it. And he gives the devil leash and then he pulls it back. Luke 22, Jesus says to Paul, Simon, Simon, Peter, behold, Satan has demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. He wants to sift you, and apparently God is going to let him this far. But I've prayed for you, and your faith will not fail, but no farther. You will not snatch him from my hand. Jesus says, you will not, none can snatch you from my hand. And my Father who's greater than all, he has you in his hand in this double grip of grace. And though Satan will be allowed to sift you at times, in the purposes and wisdom of God, your faith will not fail because Christ has prayed for you. As he prays for his own, he ever lives to intercede for his people. The reality is that God gave him leash. In Peter's life, he was sifted. He does endure. He does rise up. How does Satan do it? I believe, I hope you're catching me here. God is sovereign and he orders all things, working them all together for the good of his people and his purposes of achieving his kingdom. And, in the, and until he judges all things at the end, he allows things, he allows the enemy a certain amount of leash, he allows our sin to go certain far. But He also is in control. And He will never let you go. And He will never let you be overwhelmed. And we'll look at a couple of those verses here in a second. But how does Satan do it? How does he hinder Paul? What does that look like? Because I don't think he manifested himself and tripped him. Or, you know, that kind of thing. That it's a direct. In other words, just as often as God's work in our lives is indirect, so is the enemy's. How does he hinder? G. Barlow says, Satan hinders us. Sometimes it's by sickness imprisonment, tempests at sea, or by keeping him so fully occupied by incessant conflicts and ever new tribulations of his own as to leave him no leisure for carrying out his plan. He can distract us. He can engage us in conflict. He can tempt us and He can accuse us and He can sow doubt and dissension and He can magnify our difficulties and He can resist the kingdom in very many ways. So as we have eyes to see, remember Elisha and his servant as the enemies march toward him and the army starts to surround and the enemy is afraid and Elisha says, dude, let your eyes be opened. And he saw the armies of God, the flaming armies, the hosts of the Lord of hosts were there. 
It's a reality in which we, believe it or not, still live. These hosts of heaven. It's a re-enchanting, in a sense, of our world. A re-spiritualizing of our materialistic mindsets that, that needs to be stretched. We need to start fighting a spiritual battle. A spiritual battle. Because the enemy comes at us. It's a very practical, spiritual reality. This awareness of the enemy is prowling and he is actively hindering and he's doing it right now. And he's doing it in your life and he's doing it in this church. And we have to be awake to him and his presence and his schemes. Paul says in Ephesians 6, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Sometimes you could fool me. Sometimes I am fooled. And I am fighting flesh and I am fighting blood. We're not, we're not wrestling against human powers, but against rulers and authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness. And we live in a present time. A short time. We fight against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Calvin says, would that God, would to God that this sentiment were deeply impressed upon the minds of all pious persons that Satan is continually contriving by every means and in what way he may hinder or obstruct the edification of the church. Oh, that every Christian would have deeply impressed in his psyche, his imagination, and the way he thinks and sees the world in ministry. This idea that Satan is at work actively hindering because it would wake me up to my own feelings and emotions. Sometimes Paul talks about don't give the devil a foothold. Right? Don't let anger, the sun go down in your wrath. Don't let bitterness take a root. Don't let the devil get a foothold. Where does he get a foothold? But in us. When we start to believe his lies, when we start to be tempted, when we start to listen and and to think in ways and behave in ways and to do things that are not in keeping. And sometimes I have to be slapped about the head and face to wake me up. To repent of things that I'm thinking and things that I'm feeling because I've been tempted. Oh, that we would be awake and aware of the enemy. Spurgeon said, these despised heralds of mercy were the most dreaded foes. They preached that name which makes hell tremble. They declared that righteousness against which satanic hate always vents itself with its utmost power. We preached that gospel. We declared that name. We declared that righteousness. And it is those things, a truly biblical, gospel-preaching, Bible-teaching church, when Satan will vent his utmost power. Let me just give you a couple of quick applications. One is to remember the sovereignty of God. I, I hope I in some ways startle you awake to, you know, not necessarily looking behind every bush, but of saying, you know what? <laughs> you know, there's a lot more going on that we need to fight a spiritual battle. And we need to remember in that battle, though, God is sovereign and the devil's on a leash. But he is real. And he is active. And we need to understand and as we go into the next, resist Him. Calvin says, Satan does his part, and yet God retains supreme authority. He is Lord of the fight and Lord of hosts. 
So we should not be discouraged. We should not be discouraged knowing that He is the Lord of the fight. Knowing that He has all these things in His hands. And when we face hindrances, when we face, when we do battle, when we fight, when we are in this thing, that we would not be discouraged. In many ways, that's encouraging. Because all those who would seek to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. They will find resistance. And so they persecuted the prophets before us. And so he says, remember that God is sovereign. That He is the Lord and the enemy is limited. But we are to resist Him. James instructs the church and he says that the, the devil is really prowling around seeking who may be devoured. Don't forget and don't lose sight of this reality, he says, but resist Him and He will flee from you. But we won't resist one in whom we're not even giving account to. And one who we're not even reckoning with. You know, we may be trying to fix it in a dozen ways, but are we resisting the devil in his machinations, his schemes, his plans, and ways that he works in the way that he creates problems for us? Tempting, accusing, sowing doubt, sowing dissension, magnifying our difficulties. Oh, resist him. And that means prayer. Paul says, be anxious for nothing. When I get embroiled, I get anxious. When I enter into conflict or hard hindrances, I get anxious. Paul says, be anxious for nothing. But in everything, with thanksgiving, pray. And God will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. He will be Lord of your heart and Lord over your discouragement and your anxiety and your fear. Resist Him and pray. Philippians 1.19, Paul says, I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. How will this turn out for deliverance for us, my friends? Through your prayers and the help that will come in the Spirit of Christ as we stand against Him. He says the same in 2 Corinthians 1, you also joining and helping us through your prayers. Resist Him. Remember. Pray. And maintain unity. I'll tell you, there's nothing more common than church, divided churches. Divided people within divided churches. There's nothing, there is no more way that the devil has had his way with the church, I think, than getting us off track theologically into prosperity kind of things and into division and bickering over nothing. At least nothing of spiritual value. To maintain, Paul says in Ephesians 4, the unity of the Spirit through the bonds of peace. Maintain the unity that we have. You know, I think as we engage in spiritual warfare, and we are now, whether we know it or not, you know, there's a movie that, uh, that uh, watching, it has a scene where there's a ragtag band standing in an arena waiting for these gates to open. And as they're looking at the gates, the leader looks around at the others and he says, Whatever comes out of those gates, we have a much better chance of survival if we work together. Whatever comes out of those gates, we have a much better chance of survival if we work together. And the gates open up and the enemy flies out in, uh, in chariots and in power with Sith blades on the wheel. And they, you know, the odds are overwhelming. The enemy seems strong and insurmountable. Victory seems impossible. The odds are against them. And what is the strategy of the little band in the middle? And the leader says to them again, 
during the battle come together. Right? His cry is they've entered into it. He's already told them we need to stick together. And he cries, come together. Come together as one. As one. And they have shield wall. They have this thing, all of them who have a shield. They had in those days where you had a shield. And that's one thing. But they had a called a shield wall. If you stood side by side with another man with a shield, they had a little hook on it and you could lock it. And where two would stand, now you've got a little bit. And where three would stand, you literally create a wall. And forces it would normally topple one guy holding a shield. You know, but if you locked shields, and he says, come together as one, as one. And they lock shields together, and the enemy just hits it, and is taken, and, and, and rolls against that wall, and is defeated again and again. They are scattered. They are divided. They are conquered. As one. Hold, hold, he cries, as one. Philippians 1, 27-28 says, Standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, locking shields. Firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened by anything by your opponents. Without fear. Mighty fortresses, our God says, though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed His truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for Him. His rage we can endure because His doom is sure. One little word shall fell Him. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The Spirit and the unity of the Spirit and the gifts are ours through Him who with us sideth. That goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abides still. And His kingdom is forever. Father, we thank You for Your Word and just the truth of it here that it is living and true. And as we read it, we are exposed to the spiritual reality that we are tempted to be numb to, tempted to be callous to. Father, we confess our tendency to materialism. And we long for our hearts and our minds to be open to the spiritual realities that so truly shape our fight. Oh, teach us to fight, to pray, to resist, to be as one, standing firm in the faith and fighting the good fight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.